Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, March 18th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to catch up with Jacob Hall and talk about what he's been up to at the South by Southwest Film Festival. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello, Peter. I am back. I am tired, and I feel like I've come <laughs> home from a journey, even though I never left Austin. Yeah, welcome back. Um, you have uh, how long was South by going on for? Oh, ten days? Uh, nine days ten for days? the film fest. Nine days, and then uh, you know, it's also the interactive portion, which all the tech stuff happens before it. Then the music stuff, which goes a little bit past the film, and then I also tried to I also found time to hit up the South by Southwest Gaming uh, Expo, which is which runs during the final portion of the fest as well. So it was a very very busy week plus. Yeah. And you missed a lot of stuff while you were gone. You missed uh, J- James Gunn. Did you hear this, Jacob? James Gunn was rehired by Disney. I was sitting in the Austin air- airport parking lot re- waiting to pick up Slash Film's own Chris Evangelista <laughs> from his flight when my <laughs> phone blew up with that news. <laughs> yeah. Uh, insane. Okay. Um, you know, let's get into it. Let's dive into it and talk about uh, some of the, stu- the best and worst you've seen at the festival. But be- before we get into that, actually... Let's, um, I know you wanted to talk about some smaller stuff that didn't quite make your list, but you wanted to mention and get on people's radars. Uh, yes, I made a top 10 of my favorite films at the Fest, uh, but there's a few things that don't quite fit the criteria for that or barely missed it. And I want to start with the uh, AMC television adaptation of Joe Hill's novel Nosferatu, spelled N-O-S uh, number four, number two. <laughs> Uh, yeah, good luck Googling that. <laughs> exactly. Um, jo- Joe Hill is the son of author Stephen King? Uh, yeah, and even though he's and he's carved out a, a career very distinctive from his father, he's, he also writes horror novels, and even though Nosferatu is in many ways a tribute to his father, it is the most King-like of his work, uh, he is a very different writer in a lot of ways, and I was worried that the AMC adaptation of his show would you know maybe get the horror right, get the grotesqueness of it right, but miss what makes the book really emotional, which is that despite all the supernatural stuff, the book is really about how hard it is to love somebody who hurts you and deals with abusive parents and and how abusive parents from, from different angles, like the, the main character uh, dealing with a mother who generally wants the best for her but does not support her dreams, a father who supports every step of the way but is physically abusive to, his, to, to her mother. And it's it, it nails these emotional beats in a way that left me genuinely moved. So when the horror creeps in and the supernatural elements creep in, I was so on board for where it went. The this, this series stars Ashley Cummings as, a, as the lead character from the book, uh, Vic, short of Victoria, who is this sort of blue-collar girl living in New England who wants to be an artist and she learns that she has a supernatural ability to find the missing things, which puts her on the radar of Charlie Manx, a psychic vampire who abducts children, devours their souls to stay young, 
and stores their empty husks in a alternate dimension called Christmas Land, which he's built to be a place of utmost happiness for children, even though it's incredibly creepy and upsetting. So the, the book's about their the showdown between various superpowered individuals who all have these very distinct, specific, you know, abilities and powers. And, and the the show is uh, interestingly showrun and directed by women, uh, which gives this whole thing this very sensitive portrayal that a portrayal of everything that makes it feel unlike most horror shows out there which i feel are very masculine driven and very male driven and i am i feel like you can even though joe hill's you know a man giving his material to women i think they've really mined it for the emotions that i think a lot of you know typical horror creators may have missed this sounds pretty cool and i guess it's going to premiere on amc sometime this year they haven't announced a release date is that correct yeah they have not announced one yet it's coming this year I uh, don't think uh, I'm not sure how long the first season is, but they, they did say the plan right now is if AMC gives them the green light, they are going to make it three seasons with each season covering a, a third of the book. And if you've read the book, the, th- the first third actually has a pretty clean breakoff point. So it, it, I'm very excited to see where this goes. Uh, um, I we will I'll be watching it for sure. Uh, when we were talking about our most anticipated TV shows of 2019, one of the one of the shows that made the list is the adaptation of What We Do in the Shadows, the Teiko Atiti uh, mockumentary. Is it a mockumentary? Yeah, I guess that's the right term. Mockumentary or faux documentary or whatever people are calling it these days. Yeah. Um, and so th- this is a t- – well, can you tell us about the TV show? Because uh, is it a straight-up remake of the movie? It's strange because it's not a remake. It's meant to take place in the same universe, but instead of in Wellington, New Zealand, we follow a group of vampire roommates living in Staten Island, New York City. And uh, like the uh, vampires in the original film, you know, they are very much inspired by, you know, the classic Eastern European tropes of the vampire and how they dress, act, and the accents, but they've also adjusted to life in a, you know, uh, in, in their very modern cities and is trying to get by. And strange because whenever the, the pilot episode, which which was when they screened, whenever it tries to, like, replicate very similar laughs to the original movie, whenever it's trying to recreate moments we all loved or touch on things that are familiar, like at, make it a reference, it falls completely flat. But whenever it really digs into doing new stuff and tries to be a completely fresh thing with fresh characters and fresh concepts, it's very, very funny. I mean, it's very much a pilot. I think too much of the, of the first half hour is all about establishing plot, establishing the rules of this universe, and trying to do a greatest hits collection of the movie. But if the second and third episode can, you know, get away from the film a little bit more and focus more on, you know, creating funny situations as opposed to establishing who everyone is... I'll be watching this. It, it's a very, it's a, it's a funny half hour. Sometimes it's very funny, uh, and it's better than all the trailers. I'll give it that yeah. much. It plays a lot better in context. And this isn't something that's just like produced by Taika Waititi. He actually directed the the pilot episode that you watched, and I think uh, Jermaine Clement uh, directs the the second episode. The series will premiere on FX, I guess, in a couple weeks. Uh, yes, and I, I hope I don't know what FX's rules are right now, but. The, the version we saw screened had copious amounts of blood. It was like the movie was very violent and had uh, a fair number of very funny uh, F-bombs. So I don't know what FX's rules about swearing are these days, but I'm really, really hoping that, that at least some version that's made available will, will have all that intact. They, they've definitely done blood before, so uh, I'm not sure about the F-bombs. A lot of networks nowadays, like I feel like Mr. Robot had some F-bombs last season. Like They're pushing the boundaries. I feel like there's um, that's always something that, like, these uh these cable channels kind of like just all agreed upon but it was never like a fcc law to not have f bombs on yeah. cable yeah so it's um well, let's see uh okay uh, there's one other thing you wanted to mention until we get into your top 10 this is a movie that barely missed my top 10 but I still want to give it a shout out it's called uh, extraordinary not extraordinary but extra space ordinary <laughs> and it is a almost really really good uh supernatural comedy uh, essentially follows uh, – it's an Irish film, an Irish comedy, and directed by uh, Mike Ahern and uh, Enda Lauman. And the basic premise is that the three main characters, one of whom is a uh, – she can speak to ghosts. She inherited the ability to speak, speak to, the, uh, un, to the dead from her father, and but she's retired from trying to talk to ghosts. And in this world, 
there are hauntings everywhere. Like a trash can is haunted, a rock inside the road is haunted. So everybody, whether they know it or not, is surrounded by ghosts, and everything they know, they have around them, around them is haunted. It's just a question of whether or not they, they they know of it. And she's trying to leave life behind her. And there's a character who is a widower who's being haunted by his dead wife, who is just constantly trying to um, control his and micromanage his life uh, from beyond the grave. And there's an American rock star played by Will Forte who's uh, summoning demons in an attempt to uh, get his career back on track after being a one-hit wonder in the 80s. And the first two storylines are really, really fun. The actors are, are, are fantastic and have sort of dry wit. And when they meet and start, you know, having this sort of rom-com romance, it's very sweet. And I was really on board for their sort of uh, – for their relationship and how – they both have this extremely low-key, oh, uh, hauntings and ghosts are actually kind of boring <laughs> approach to their lives. But Will Will Forte is this disastrous casting in this. It, it's like if if Will Ferrell playing Ron Burgundy walked into the British office and just started not toning it down at all. And this didn't make my top ten because of Will Forte. And I adore the man. He's in, he was in maybe three or four films at South Southwest this year. And I can recommend Extraordinary especially uh, to pretty much anybody who likes, you know, anything that blends horror and comedy. But I, I feel like they are one casting choice away from this being like an instant, you know, indie must see. I will say it's one of the highest rated things on IMDb out of, out of the festival. Strangely, um, this movie, I don't even think has gotten picked up yet. So we don't know when this is going to premiere. Yeah, not yet. Um, I'm hoping it gets picked up because it, there's, there's, a vibe here that I'm really digging, and I'm 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 not alone in thinking that Forte ruins the movie or comes close to it. Uh, but a lot of people also enjoyed him in it, so I, I think that we have a chance to see it, whether that's just for streaming or just straight to VOD at some point. Uh, but I can't imagine it vanishing off the face of the earth, especially with Will Forte in it. Okay, uh, we're about to get into your top ten list prior. Actually, before that, did you want to talk about the one film that you saw that you hated? Okay, I saw films I disliked at the fest, but I have a, I generally don't want to dwell on the you know undistributed smaller films that I didn't care for. I wrote small reviews of everything I, I saw. You can see that on slash almost linked in the show notes. But the one major premiere that I straight up disliked, Peter, and I thought I was worried I could have been alone, but Meredith Borders wrote a full review for us, and she agreed, which is The Curse of uh, La Llorona, the latest film in the Conjuring universe, which was confirmed at the premiere before the screening even started. Uh, it's a straight-up bad movie, Peter. And as somebody who's enjoyed every single Conjuring movie, uh, you know the core entries, both Annabelle films, even The Nun, I'm a super fan of those movies, and I and will d- defend even the weaker ones. This is an undefensible piece of junk. It is why? Why? What's <sighs> so bad about it? Okay. Imagine the Conjuring formula. We, we, we all know what the Conjuring formula is, which is there's a haunting, there are lots of jump scares, there's a family in trouble, a investigator of some kind comes in to save the day. All the things we've seen in pretty much all the other Conjuring movies, except that when I think of the Conjuring 1 and 2, I will, yes, I will think of the jump scares, the, the effective jump scares that James Wan builds in those, but I will first think of the specificity of the hauntings, how specific the ghosts or demonic threats are and how they deal with them. I think of the characters. I think of how Ed and Lorraine Warren, the characters played by Vera Farmiga and Patrick Wilson in those movies, are characters who I can root for. How they're they're, they're so in love with each other. They care about the people trying to help. They make mistakes. They bounce back, and we're rooting for them. And I think of the climax of the of the Conjuring too, where there's an, a massive cast of characters all experiencing their own miniature arcs inside the larger um, film, where lots of stuff is happening, and I care about all of it. La Llorona is just jump scares. It is 90 minutes of people being thrown across rooms with loud volume. I cannot tell you a single thing about any of the main characters. I cannot tell you anything about the the, uh, supernatural expert who shows up to help them. They introduce him as being uh, an ex-priest who left the church because he was too extreme. (laughs) And then he just doesn't do anything. Like he, he's, he doesn't have any character. He doesn't seem too extreme. He doesn't seem like interesting at all. No good, no decent dialogue, no character traits I can recount to you now. And even though y- 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 La Llorona herself, who is an actual uh, Latin American folktale, you would think that to be some sort of specificity, something here that would you know make this unique. But you could remove her from the movie entirely, replace her with any generic ghost made up, and nothing would change. Even the main character, who is a white woman, 
whose Hispanic husband was killed in line of duty as a police officer. She's raising two, you know, mixed race kids in 1970s Los Angeles. And the movie has this window dressing of, you know, Latin culture and uh, Mexican characters, but it never delves into it. It never, like, I kept waiting for the movie to have to explore this in some way about how here's a white woman who has to protect her, you know, mixed race Hispanic kids from a boogeyman that is specific to their culture and heritage that she's never had to deal with. I mean, if you if you're going to if you have to have a white character lead a Hispanic story, you could at least engage with that. Engage with how she has to protect her children by learning about the culture that she could walk away from, but they can't. And that's a great seed for a horror film. And all horror is a great metaphor. All great horror tells a story beyond being scary, but it never does, Peter. It never once engages with any sort of subtext with any sort of commentary. It just says, Hey, if you're Hispanic, you've heard of this ghost before. Now she's going to jump out at you very loudly 20 times. It, I am, it is and my director, uh, Michael Chavez has been hired to make the conjuring three. And I don't, I, I'm, I know James Wan is, you know, off making billion dollar superhero movies now, even as he produces these, but I really hope he reconsiders or somebody at new line and WB reconsiders because he feels like he feels like a disastrous choice for conjuring three. There's nothing here that says he can make a horror movie <sighs> that where I give a damn about anyone in it. Okay. Um, let, let, let's actually talk about some films that you love. <laughs> I love some movies, Peter. I really yeah. did. <laughs> and we've, we've done 15 minutes before we've actually gotten to your top 10. Um, so this episode's probably going to run long, but let's start with your number 10, which is Olympic dreams. Olympic dreams is a fascinating movie. It's directed by uh, Jeremy uh, teacher and he was offered a art artist fellowship by the Olympic games. And so he used it by embedding himself at the Winter Olympics in South Korea last year, where uh, he hired comedian Nick Kroll and uh, athlete-turned-actress Alexi Pappas, who competed in 2016 games in Rio, to be the only fictional characters in the movie. He, uh, The director, uh, teacher himself was a one-man camera crew. He carried all the sound equipment himself. He strapped on microphones to Kroll and Pappas. And then with a very loose story structure... They went behind the scenes at the Olympic Village where only the athletes uh, are allowed. You know, no, no coaches, no family, no press. And it's about an uh, Olympian played by Pappas who on day one of the Winter Olympics uh, fails the place and does quite poorly in her competition. And Kroll playing a lovelorn uh, volunteer doctor from the United States volunteering in the Olympic Village. Um, they both meet. They have this sort of lost in translation-esque, you know, friendship that blossoms into being something you know profound where they where they find each other in their own loneliness and the entire movie is them essentially wandering through the olympic village uh having conversations connecting and as we learned in the q a all the other characters are actual athletes who would be roped into the scenes at the last second and ask can you come play yourself for a second and they improvised where the story goes improvise most of the dialogue and they recorded all the sound on, like on on scene surrounded by hundreds of athletes who did not know they were in the movie and the result even even when it kind of hits some very cliched indie beats and there are moments in the movies that don't work at all and i feel like they kind of back themselves into some corners by not having a script and sort of improving the way in, into cliches the thrill of seeing these two uh, who are very good together wander through a place that we never get to see the actual olympic village and interact with athletes who are actually playing themselves and really sharing their hopes and dreams and, and giving us insight into what it means to be an Olympian. Uh, it is fascinating. And Kroll, being a comedian, he's so good-natured and fun that he brings out the best in these athletes. So so even when they're not actors, he's like make, he's making them look better by being next to him. And it, it is, if you're a fan of like just experimental filmmaking that somehow works as a narrative, this is a really fascinating thing. You're you're saying all the right things to make me interested in this. Like I love, you know, uh, Lost in Translation. I, uh, you know, I was even fascinated by that. Um, uh, years ago at Sundance, they had this film that was shot undercover at Disneyland. That was called Escape from Tomorrow. I think. Yeah, I saw um, that Fantastic Fest. That movie's crazy. Yeah, it's a crazy movie. It's a really experimental. It's not a good movie, but I remember coming out of that screening being like, so. Uh, taken by the you know just the concept so i'm wondering like is this actually a good movie uh or is it like just like you're so enthralled in how it was made 
It's such a good question. Even during the Q&A, the sound mixer was there talking about, talking about how he used the most advanced sound uh, editing equipment in, in, the, in, the, in all of Hollywood to make sure they could use the raw dialogue. And like, I was fascinated by the Q&A just as much as the movie. And so I, I've given this a lot of thought because there are certain decisions in the, in the movie, that, uh, storytelling decisions, that I learned after the fact were improv in the moment and they don't work at all. And they're the weakest moments in the movie. But the stuff that does work, the stuff that I let, that left me charmed and heartbroken and like warm all over, was also improvised by the actors and the director on the spot. So it's just this crazy experiment that, if you did not know how it was made and did not know the Olympic Village was such a, a place was off limits to cameras, then I don't. Th- I think you'd watch it and enjoy it just fine as this really charming, you know, indie movie. But knowing how it was made just enhances it to the point where if you like filmmaking and like the nuts and bolts of it, you need to see this. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to add this to my watch list on my letterbox account, uh, which, by the way, this is I, I think the purpose of like a podcast like this is put these films on the radar of, you know, people listening out there because, you know, these are films that, uh, you know, some of them might blow up. Some of these might become huge hits. So we, we've had that in South by in the past, but some of these might be just, you know, gems that if you didn't hear about them somehow, you had to, you know, come across in some weird strange you know way uh so uh you know jacob saying all these films are worth your time uh i'm gonna add some of them to my list uh the ones that sound interesting to me actually the next one also sounds interesting to me i know we talked about this before and this is the peanut butter falcon yeah the peanut butter falcon uh the writing joke about this movie itself by is that sounds like if 30 rock wanted to make up a fake indie movie uh, the, the big fun of indie movies, it would be The Peanut Butter Falcon, uh, which is about a man with Down syndrome who escapes from his nursing home to embark on a road trip uh, with a criminal on the run so he could become a professional wrestler. <laughs> um, that sounds terrible. But uh, the truth is that Peanut Butter Falcon not only won the audience award, which is, you know, when the audience members vote on your favorite movies of the festival, uh, but it's it's genuinely good. It's the directorial debut of Tyler Nilsson and Michael Schwartz. And they actually uh, wrote the film for Zachary Gottsagen, who actually has Down syndrome, who they knew in real life. And then one day they learned wanted to be an actor. So they said, well, write a movie for him. And they did. They managed to cast Shia LaBeouf and Dakota Johnson and Bruce Dern and John Hawks and John Bernthal and Thomas Hayden Church. Like all these real actors in their directorial debut, which actually stars a man with Down syndrome as, as a man with Down syndrome. And it is sometimes rough and uneven, as you'd expect from you know a first time film from anybody. Uh, but it is genuinely sweet. It wears his heart on its sleeve. And Shia LaBeouf, who plays the ex-con who uh, takes Zach, the man of Down syndrome, under his wing. And they develop a sort of a big brother, younger brother relationship as a journey through the American South. Uh, like Shia LaBeouf, I know, is in the middle of a comeback tour right now between this and Honey Boy. And he's fantastic here. This is like a reminder that he is just an incredible actor. And he has is in, a wonderful rapport with Zachary Gottsagen. And I feel like... Maybe a lot of actors, when paired with a non-actor, may want to make it about themselves or may overwhelm a non-professional like Gottsagen, especially somebody who is, you know, has a disability that we can't, you know, that's noticeable in all the scenes. Um, but they're both not only really funny together, they're really warm together. And Shia LaBeouf knows when it's important for him to let his co-star shine and working with the directors, I'm assuming. It is not the is not the Shia LaBeouf show, even though he's quietly great. It is the Shia LaBeouf and Zachary Gottsagen show as these two become like just this pair that I'm going to think about a lot this year when I think about movies I loved. The whole thing is uneven. I, I'm not so sure I like where it goes. I don't really like what they do with the, the Dakota Johnson character, who is the uh, retirement home community um, worker who's like searching for them. And there's some stuff that just feels a little too cute for its own good. It's, it's, it's definitely quirky in ways that work and ways that don't. But at the end of the day, the filmmakers know this is about, you know, these two very different men becoming brother figures as they wander through beautiful landscapes and have really funny conversations about, you know, life and wrestling and and just what it means to, you know, uh, be your own person and live a free life. And I was really charmed and moved by it ultimately. And, you know, I really hope this means Zachary Gottsagen gets more work, even though, he, you know, even though I'm worried that Hollywood will see him and just want to make him into the butt of jokes, which is where they tend to put all actors with Down syndrome. 
and it's also but it's also reminded that Shia LaBeouf is such a generous, like forceful screen presence who can do pretty much anything when he's not having one of his meltdowns. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, he was arrested for public drunkenness during the filming of this movie. Oh, well, um, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, this sounds interesting. Nobody has picked this up yet, so there's a chance we might not see this. Like, it, this sounds like something like I'm looking at the poster of this, and I could totally see this as like something that Netflix would pick up, and it would be like one of those tiles on the screen. Yeah, if this was ten years ago, this would have been picked up and, and made into a Little Miss Sunshine sized, you know, sleeper hit. Uh, but these days, it feels like very much like the kind of thing Netflix would would pick up because people, like people, want aged it for this movie. Peter, like regular folks, <laughs> people who don't write about movies for a living, yeah. people who just want to enjoy films, they went crazy for this. So uh, it's a real crowd pleaser, and I really hope people get a chance to see it. Okay, let's talk about your next film, and that is Stuber. Stuber is one that's tricky to talk about because we were shown a work-in-progress cut of the film, which means it wasn't finished. There were no opening credits, no closing credits. Uh, All the color correction was done. The director was still working on final editing touches. So I feel weird talking about it in any capacity. Uh, But uh, we've written about work-in-progress cuts. They are screening it at a public film festival. Exactly, yep. Uh, this is a new film from Michael Dowes, who who made Goon, the hockey comedy that everybody loves, and which I, I like. And it's very good. It is a very, very good uh, buddy comedy, buddy cop comedy, if you will, uh, where Dave Bautista from Guardians of the Galaxy and Blade Runner 2049, you know, everybody's uh, favorite, you know, uh, high-minded wrestler. Like, pretty much he's opposite The Rock. He's pursuing all kinds of various interesting, challenging roles, whereas The Rock plays The Rock all the time. I love you, The Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Here he's playing this, you know, uh, rapidly aging uh, cop who's searching for a drug dealer played by Eco Uis from The Raid, and his eyesight's failing him, and his and his his partner dies in the opening scene, and he's just this old tired man who's abandoned his family uh, in order to you know do his job, and he get and he gets eye surgery, laser eye surgery, on the same day where he gets a massive break in the case, so una- unable unable to drive. He commandeers an Uber being driven by Camille Nanjiani's stew. And the rest of the movie is this mild-mannered, progressive, young Uber driver clashing with the brutish, you know, meat-headed cop who is forcing him to drive him across L.A. as they get into gunfights and car chases and all kinds of wacky hijinks. And it's very much modeled in the lethal weapon, 48 hours mold, you know, mismatched guys driving around, arguing, yelling, eventually becoming friends. And it's very funny. The action is fine. The action is not going to blow your mind off. But Batista and Nanjiani are just an instant classic pair. I loved watching these two. Their banter is so good. And like it's, it's, it's the kind of movie where um, it pauses for an extended never-ending story joke that made me laugh and is still making me laugh. And uh, I'm just fascinated by the dynamic between uh, these two because – you know, it's it's very much a very classic traditional setup, which is you know, Batista's cops go and teach Nanjiani it's okay to be a tough guy, and Nanjiani's going to teach Batista it's okay to cry sometimes. Uh, but they're both doing this so well. It is a it is a well worn template, uh, but these two just I, I want to see them maybe not necessarily in a sequel, but in more movies together because they bounce off each other so well. Yeah, and uh, features a score by Joseph Trapanese. Um, this film is produced by Fox and will be released this summer, July? Yes. Yeah, so uh, look out for that. Let's move on to Villains. Uh, what is this one about? Villains was my big uh, narrative surprise. It was one, like, you know, a lot, unfortunately, for better or worse, a lot of the movies on my, on my list are the major headliner films, when people were, were actively anticipating, ones that were major screenings. Villains was one that kind of snuck up on me. One of those, I'm going to go see this because I have time to, to kill, and it, I loved it, is uh, by directors Dan Burke and Robert Olson. And Peter, have you ever played the uh, tabletop role-playing game Fiasco? I have not, but I, I've, I've watched... Um... I think I've watched Will Whedon play it on uh, the the TV show Tabletop. Uh, well, for those of you who don't know, Fiasco is a game where a group of people sit around a table playing characters, you know, four or five characters, uh, and they build a scenario where they where their characters make increasingly poor decisions that eventually leave everything going wrong for everyone. 
Villains feels like a game of fiasco come to life. And it stars Bill Skarsgård, uh, you know, Pennywise from the new It, and Micah Monroe from It Follows, is this incredibly sweet, endearing, um, but incredibly idiotic and not very smart uh, criminal duo who are robbing stores on a road trip south so they can open a store in Florida. And, and the, the movie treats them as being incredibly likable people. We, we're on board with them. Uh, they're, they're not murderers, not killers. They're just idiots with a gun who have a dream. And the car runs out of gas. They see a nearby house in the woods. Think, we'll break in that house, steal the car, be on our way, and everything will be fine. They're not counting on that house being owned by two absolute psychopaths, played by Kara Sedgwick and Jeffrey Donovan from Burn Notice. And I was not expecting to say the lead from Burn Notice gives one of my favorite performances of South by Southwest. Oh, wow. but he's he's wearing pretty much he he's wearing his best Bill Paxton suit. If, Bill, if the late Bill Paxton was still alive and asked to play a like the, a crazy serial killer from the Deep South, he'd be playing this character instead. But um, ultimately, it's about four people, two couples who deeply love each other, but on the wrong side of the law, in the same house battling for survival over the course of a few very bad days as you know they trade the upper hand multiple times they you know and it's about and it's ultimately if it's about anything it's about how um sometimes you find the person you love uh, in the in just the completely wrong place and uh, you know who and sometimes you know if you think you're the villain, if you're the bad guys, you know robbing stores, you're gonna find someone a lot worse than you if you look hard enough. And it has that sort of early Coen Brothers thing where it's only a handful of characters. It blends, you know, thriller and dark comedy very well. I thought of Blood Simple many times while watching this. And uh, like I said, I, I think Skarsgård and Monroe are great together. I think Donovan and Cedric are great together. And as just dueling couples, you know, with dark motivations, I was very much on board with everything this movie was selling me. Yes, and uh, this has uh, – what's her name? Uh, Mika Monroe? Who um, I, am. I, I love. I, I first saw her at, in uh, at any price uh, in like 2012, but she's kind of made a huge name for herself. She was in It Follows and um, what else? Uh, get the Guest? Yeah, The Guest. Yeah, the Guest and unfortunately Independence Day Resurgence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, she should she should keep to the indies like this. Yeah, yeah. I I, I adore her. Uh, I think she is on the verge of like being a huge star and in the right thing. And I think that a lot of people like a lot of a lot of people um, the people who are always searching movies for like you know ideal couples like couples who are like for all faults like really make sense like as characters. I think a lot of people are going to really dig what her and Skarsgård have in this movie as, as chemistry. Yeah, and she's also in Honey Boy. Which we should mention because we mentioned that earlier. Um, okay, let's move on to the next film, and that is Pet Cemetery. I know Chris. Wait, did Chris say that Pet Cemetery was his favorite Stephen King movie of all time? I can't remember if he said it was of all time, but he said it's one of the absolute best, uh, and I agree. Wow. Uh, yeah, it is. Wait, so th- th- this you know approaches The Shining by Stanley Kubrick. Hmm. <laughs> the Shining has the Shining has thirty years of reputation of reputation, but I put Pet Cemetery in the top five, and that's a weird thing to say. Because, okay. Also, because there are a lot of very bad Stephen King adaptations. I'd say there are a lot more bad than there are good, but I'd say Pet Cemetery belongs in the same conversation, in the same paragraph as the two thousand seventeen It, and um and The Shining at the, at the very least. And the Shining comparison also makes sense because what uh. Directors Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Widmeyer, who made the indie Starry Eyes, which is really good. You should see it. Uh, what, they, what they do here is they don't adapt the book directly as much as they try to capture the tone that the book gets across. And Chris wrote this at length in his review, and he's going to be doing a direct comparison between the book, the 2019 film, and the 1989 adaptation as an article for us closer to release. So you can see how all three of them stack up. And... They make a major change to the story. It's actually in the trailers if you know the book. But halfway through the movie, a fundamental change to the story's plot occurs that has ripple effects that lead to the back half of the movie being almost completely different from the book in almost every way. Uh, there is almost no comparison beyond very, very basic structure. And at first, as a longtime Stephen King reader, I was like feeling that, that weird tenseness at your shoulders when, you, when, you, when you're watching an adaptation of something you love and you think, are they going to get this wrong? But the changes they make are so smart and it makes so much sense of the story they want to tell. I mean, maybe it's not as good as Kubrick's The Shining. I mean, what is? But I feel like Kubrick saw, you know, The Shining as 
clay that he could reshape to, you know, m- make his own. And Kolsch and Widmeyer are have reshaped Pet Cemetery into the movie they want to make instead of the movie St- Stephen King wrote. And ultimately, it's a decision that works. It comes at the expense of there's a my favorite character in all of Stephen King, uh, Judd Crandall, played by John Lithgow in this movie, gets short shrift. I feel like he's uh, he gets really cut to the bone when it comes to character development. But that's because clearly Widmeyer and Colch were, were more inspired by other parts of the book and lean heavily into those instead. So I, I was thinking very hard about this, thinking would my favorite parts of the book have fit into the actual movie these two are making? And the answer is no. Um, they make decisions that empower their vision, not Stephen King's vision. And that actually makes it an extremely good Stephen King uh, adaptation. <laughs> And I'm really impressed by the acting. I think Jason Clark and Amy Simetz are very good as the leads. The, the two parents who are moving to a small main town next to a uh, cursed area of land that can resurrect the dead. But uh, Jette Lawrence as their young daughter, Ellie, who's really impressive. And it's one of those child performances that kind of blew me away. And I'm very excited for us to maybe have a spoiler cast with Chris in the future to talk about it what she does and why she's so good here. And this movie is, and Peter, I just want to emphasize, this is a real, this is a feel bad movie. Pet Sematary is a feel bad book. It's miserable. It's dark. It's about grief. It's about how grief transforms you into something that, uh, something unrecognizable that you have to, that, that you, something, that, that's something where you make all the wrong decisions to try to fill the hole that has been made in you. But Pet Sematary is also a really good time with the movies. It's darkly funny. It's scary. It's violent. People are screaming and cheering throughout the premiere. And, it, it walks that really fine line of being a wide release Paramount horror film. It's going to leave people like, you know, screaming and talking and buzzing while also filling you full of like that really specific Pet Cemetery dread. Well, it sounds like you and Chris both love this. I, I've seen some buzz online. It seems like more other people are a little bit more mixed, but it seems like mostly people are really enjoying it. Um, yeah. For what, for what it's worth, I've talked to people who were more lukewarm on it. Yeah. Uh, but I, Chris and I are both over the moon for it, and um, Chris was the opinion I was really worried about because Chris this is Chris's favorite book. So um, <laughs> I was when I, when I heard when I talked to him and, and he, he liked it, I was like, oh, thank God, I'm not alone. So yeah, so I, I I'm I think that if you like horror in any way, this is going to be something you need to see. Yeah, I remember he messaged our Slack channel before he was seeing the movie because he was like sitting there in the theater, like just at the peak of anticipation. And I think he said something like, "If I don't like this movie, I think I just have to disappear," or something like that. <laughs> and uh, it's it's the it's the way I feel whenever I see a new Star Wars movie. Yeah, um, very much. Okay, one of the big films that came out of this festival, uh, South by always has like a big like mainstream comedy kind of hit that kind of breaks out or you know is like the the talk of the fest and this year i think it was good boys this is the evan goldberg seth rogan produced comedy um tell us about that yeah good boys is uh, directed by gene stepnitsky and uh peter this i have not laughed this hard in a long time I, there are better comedies i saw stuff by this year in terms of like being more complete films that with you know that resonate more that we'll, we'll get to soon enough but in terms of pure laughter and pure consistent laughter, even in even when you reach that final twenty minutes where most comedies have to tamp down to laughs to finish the plot, Good Boys is hysterical from beginning to end. And what makes this movie unique, and it's an R rated comedy, it is filthy, it is raunchy, it is full of drugs and sex jokes. Uh, but what makes it really special is that the three main characters are eleven year old boys who, as the title implies, are good kids. They respect their parents, they respect the authorities, they follow the rules, they do well in school. And the comedy comes from them trying to maintain their structured world as things go horribly wrong for them. I mean, the, the movie kicks off with them uh, being invited to a kissing party, which naturally is where you go have to go kiss girls. And it's where you learn who you're going to marry and who is very important for the rest of your life because you have to make sure they get it right. And, Jacob, I was never invited <laughs> to any of these kissing parties. I know. Neither was I, Peter. <laughs> but it's uh, – things. But long story short, this is all first act stuff is – a character played by Jacob Tremblay, who's uh, the, I guess the lead of the movie, even though uh, the three kids, uh, also played by Brady Noon and Keith L. Williams, uh, all, all three of them are great, and they are all all share lead duties. They destroy Jacob Tremblay's character's, uh, his father's prized drone, and so they're forced to skip school to find a way to replace it. Cause they're not, and they, so that's so actually, they're already stepping above and beyond, you know, what they 
would do as good kids. You know, skipping school is the worst thing imaginable. So naturally they start encountering, you know, all kinds of wildly escalating bad decisions and bad situations as they start being forced to um, break all the rules in the name of the greater good. Because, you know, if, if they don't save this drone, they could be grounded and no, no one could go to the kissing party and it'll destroy their lives forever because if they can't do that, then what's the use of being alive anymore? <laughs> so yeah. it, it's, it's very much from the perspective of these kids who, you know, have all the, you know, who have not yet learned that somebody who who does drugs is not immediately a bad person. So they're seen really come to somebody who's, who's doing drugs and they try to lecture them about how doing drugs is going to destroy their lives. And they don't, they don't understand what sex is, but they're very much aware of consent. So they're always constantly concerned about how, when I kiss a girl, I need to make sure she, she consents first. And it's <laughs> so sweet. Like the comedy itself, even though it's filthy as it is, comes from the fact that these kids are so innocent, so sweet and so uncorrupt. And it manages to, uh, be so filthy without ever being mean. It's never a cruel movie. It's never vicious and it never aims it down. Yeah. And it's, it's actually a trend itself. I see I'll get to that in a second, but it's, I feel like Seth Rogen, you know, this is, even though he doesn't uh, write this or direct this, it feels very much like on brand for him, but also on brand that he's grown up a lot since we first saw him in super bad knocked up. He's, you know, over a decade older and a lot wiser and the stuff he's supporting these days the have comedy he's making, including a uh, long shot, which I did not see, but apparently has a very similar tone is, how can we be filthy and outrageous while not punching down, while not being cruel, while making sure that, you know, all the usual targets of this type of comedy, you know, from the past are either in on the joke or part of the joke without, you know, being the victim of it. Yeah. And Good Boys does this while being so funny. And uh, this is Gene's direct uh, feature directorial debut. He directed some episodes of The Office, which he also uh, co-wrote. Uh, I think a, over a dozen episodes with uh, his partner Lee, who also wrote this, and he's been writing stuff like Year One, Bad Teacher, but uh, this is his uh, his big uh, coming out thing. So yeah, I think this could be a, such a huge hit. Like it, it is. Uh, I know this is such a cliche, Peter. I was literally sore in my throat and my abdomen from laughing. I mean, I just I, I I hurt. I hurt all over when this was over. Okay, uh, we have. Four more movies to talk about. We've already <laughs> gone 40 minutes. Uh, hopefully right. people are enjoying this. Uh, let's talk so. about your next one is, is Tread. Tread. This is a new documentary from director uh, Paul Solette. Uh, trivia, personal trivia. The very first Southwest West film I ever saw was Paul Solette's Grace, a horror film literally 10 years ago, Southwest Southwest 2009. So some kind of full circle thing happened here. But uh, Tread is a documentary about a man in a small Colorado town who transforms a bulldozer into a bulletproof tank and rampages through his town, destroying buildings and causing mayhem. And the National Guard is called, and the police can't stop him. And eventually he, he gets stuck and kills himself inside his tank. And that's that's like, and the movie then says, okay, how did this happen? And why did nobody talk about this for more than a day when it happened in 2004? And the fascinating thing here is the, guy, the man who did this he left hundreds of hours of audio recordings explaining why he was doing this. So the first third of, of Tread is essentially his story, his perspective, his audio recordings, his friends explaining why he had this breakdown, why he went on this rampage, why he did something that was so horrible. And then the middle third of the movie is all the people he was targeting, and all the townsfolk, they tell their side of the story, and it completely contradicts his story. And... There's all these really well shot reenactments in addition to the um, you know talking head stuff that like sort of depict different perspectives, how things were from different points of view and how they and how they clash. And like the first hour of this movie is you wondering who is telling the truth here, who is lying. Either this guy was crazy uh, and he's and his ramblings and the tapes are unreliable or everyone who's still alive is lying to the cameras. And I have an opinion based on how, how things fell when the credits roll. Um, well, I, I think yeah. giving your opinion at this point, I feel like is maybe a spoiler, even though it's yeah. your opinion. Exactly. Um, yeah. And then the last chunk of the movie is a combination of recreations and actual footage from his actual tank rampage. And um, oh. it is really, uh, it's really unsettling. It is fascinating. And, and, it, and we're in this era where there's so many like true crime docs on Netflix. There are so many of them that are about, you know, missing women and, you know, serial killers and this was a really, really refreshing kind of true crime doc. One that's feels very relevant. I mean, this was 2004, but the idea of 
a blue collar white man going on a rampage for reasons that are explored in depth in the film is something that is that hits a lot harder i think to audiences now than it may have in 2004 when this happened and it's very much it feels very timely in a way that the film leans into and is not afraid and it's not afraid to acknowledge and it's one of those things where if you'd written this as a screenplay if you'd written the details that happen and the interactions and some of the beats if you'd written them as a fictional screenplay and submitted it you have gotten notes back saying this is too implausible. This wouldn't have happened. So the only way to tell a story was a doc. And this has not, this hasn't been picked up yet, but I can imagine this being something that appears on Netflix one day. And then everybody at your office or, your, or wherever you work says, did you watch tread? It's on Netflix. And it's crazy. So I, I, I really hope that somebody realized that this is a streaming hit waiting to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It hasn't been picked up yet. Doug Lyman produced this. Uh, hopefully it will find a home somewhere. I love, I love stories that have an unreliable narrator and especially go into the the trying to the puzzle of trying to figure out, you know, what the real story is. And so I'm assuming by the end of this film, I'm not sure if this is a spoiler, like do do we have a better idea or not? Um I feel like I do. Okay. Um but I also feel like people there are certain reveals that happen um some very cleverly, some very quietly. That I think will resonate in different ways for people based on their backgrounds and what they believe. Okay, uh, let's move on to the art of self defense. I know, I, didn't they set up like a dojo at at uh, South by? I saw some photos from that. Like there <laughs> yeah, were... uh, uh, Fonz PR, who's who, their local company, they, uh, who who rep a lot of indie films, but also increasingly major films. They they have a they have a knack for uh, doing really dramatic press days, and they did they did press for this in a dojo where apparently you had to challenge certain people to an actual like uh, quote unquote karate battle in order to interview them. It was very silly, uh, but the movie itself uh, beyond you know silly um, and headline grabbing uh, press day. The movie itself is fantastic. Uh, Meredith Board reviewed this one for us as well. She gave it a ten out of ten, and I. And I and I have a hard time arguing with somebody who loves it that much. This is the next film from Riley Stearns, who made a film called Faults. I played a South by Southwest about five years ago. And Faults was a very small, one, like one-room, practically, thriller. And Art of Self-Defense is a bigger film with more recognizable actors. It's uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots are the two leads. And this is very much Fight Club for 2019. And I say that because um, both films are ultimately about the same thing, but uh, whereas, but whereas uh, Fight Club was about the allure of being in a a hypermasculine group, uh, and about how sexy Tyler Durden was, and about how you know, you know how intoxicating it is to be a part of, of that kind of you know tear it all down, embrace your inner man, you know, become primal structure. And, you know, and, if I, and of course, Fight Club and its final act reveals that, oh no, this is a, this is a terrible idea. What, what have we done? Uh, the Art of Self-Defense follows a very, very similar setup where Jesse Eisenberg's character is mugged uh, and almost killed uh, uh, right outside his home and joins a karate dojo to learn how to defend himself and gets slowly pulled into this web of uh, toxic masculinity where all the people belong to this dojo just embrace violence and embrace being a man and embrace, you know, throwing aside any idea of sensitivity or understanding of other people in, in favor of, you know, you above all else, being a man above all else. And the main character, the main villain here of sorts, the uh, who only goes by Sensei, played by Alessandro Nivola, an actor who's been popping up more and more these days in character actor roles. I remember him best originally as the uh, one, the, one the, like the like the young guy from Jurassic Park three, but if you only remember from that, he's like aged into a really fascinating character actor who's been in a ton of things recently, and he's this terrifying Donald Trump esque figure where you watch him from a distance and go, he's absolutely ridiculous. He is clearly a moron. He's clearly not doesn't know what he's talking about. And these people, why are they following? Him? Why are they hanging on to every word? He's clearly leading these these young men down a dangerous path and poisoning their minds. Do you realize? Oh. Because that's exactly the point of this. It's it's entirely a movie. It's, it's also very funny and very absurd in its comedy, but it, it it really lands home and hits hard in its like damning depiction of you know how in 2019 YouTubers are you know poisoning young men into thinking you know you know you should only act this way if you're a man. You should only act this way because you know feminists are destroying the world, and it does all this while 
having this it's almost fastidious in its design peter uh it, it, there's no set period of time like it feels like a vaguely 1994 setting you know it's never specified and it almost, almost reminds me of, of it's wes anderson like in that every single attention to detail in the production design is very very specific it's framed in, in very very specific ways the characters have very quirky dialogue but uh, it's not as like it's not as you know cute as a Wes Anderson movie. But I feel like it's a good comparison to try to explain how stylized the dialogue is and how stylized the film is. And, but and also like Wes Anderson's best, you know, it, it used that style to you know make you laugh and ease you into some pretty dark stuff. I am also very excited to see this film. I'll add this to my list as well. Uh, let's talk about your, to your next to your I guess oh, real quick. Sorry, uh, Arsenal Defense does have release. Does have release date. Uh, Bleecker Street will release it on June twenty first of this year, so oh. you will have a chance to see it. Very cool. Okay, let's talk about your pen ultimate film in uh, of the fest, and that is Booksmart. What is Booksmart? Uh, Booksmart is the directorial debut of uh, Olivia Wilde, who you may have seen in a uh, number of movies. She's a very good actress, and it turns out she is a very inspired director. Uh, Booksmart is. You could call it uh, super super bad with girls, but I feel that's almost reductive because it's way better than super bad, and I, and I like super bad. Uh, the basic gist is uh, Caitlin Deaver, uh, you may know from um, Short Term Twelve and Justified, and Beanie Feldstein, who was in the you know Lady Bird's best friend in Lady Bird, are two high school overachievers who, on the last day of school, right before graduation, learn that all the idiots in school, all the people who they've ignored and mocked from afar and, and treated as, you know, lesser than, have all gotten in, into college and have all have all have like careers ahead of them and are, and are doing just as well for their future as they were. And they did it and they sacrificed all the parties and all the fun and all the hanging out and all the friendships. Um, so they can concentrate on college, whereas everybody else did all that and and are, and are still doing just as well uh, on on the path from graduation. So fed up with it, they decide to have use their last night of high school to go out and party as much as possible and try to have all the adventures that they missed over four years in one night. And from that, you know, fairly standard setup, it just becomes incredibly funny, but also incredibly heartwarming. It had uh, there's definitely shades of Breakfast Club in there, where where you know Breakfast Club is ultimately a movie about you know you do not know your fellow person until you, until you know them, <laughs> until you actually meet them and understand them, and Booksmart follows these characters as they get into you know, a series of comedic incidents as they stumble from set piece to set piece, um, you know, uh, party to party, and just all kinds of bad things happen to them and all kinds of life lessons are learned. And it all happens in ways that I was not expecting. I mean, I feel like I'm describing a very generic comedy here, but it's incredibly sweet. And the relationship between the two characters uh, is just this unapologetically real portrait of how two incredibly uncool people connect. And I was, I'm very much on board with Olivia Wilde as a director. This is far more, far more interestingly shot than most comedies. I mean, I, Good Boys, which I really liked, feels like it, it feels like it's shot like a pretty standard comedy. Whereas Wilde has an actual eye, and her camera's put in interesting places. And every character in this movie just feels real. It feels authentic. And I want to spend time with all of them. And I, I am in love with this movie. I'm in love with all the characters, even the ones who seem like idiots. And I, I'm thrilled for Olivia Wilde making more movies. I am thrilled for Caitlin Deaver and Beanie Feldstein hopefully being a big breakout from this movie. And Annapurna uh, is releasing this this summer uh, on May 24th, actually. And I hope they sell this right because it feels like it. It feels like it should be a classic. It feels like it should be the kind of movie that people like count up there with Breakfast Club was super bad, and it feels like it's as as emotional as something like The Edge of Seventeen, but with bigger laughs. Uh, I'm sorry, Jacob. Nobody pays to see the Annapurna movies. And... <laughs> <laughs> we, oh, well... we we talked about this on the podcast last week. Uh, they're like just like almost every single one of them has kind of not made its money back. So it's, I know uh... it's. But this is such like a crowd pleasing mainstream yeah. movie that works. It has the Annapurna thing in that it's extremely well done uh, and extremely like and, and full of actors you've seen in a lot of indie stuff as well as like you know appearances from you know major comedy stars. You know Will Ferrell, Adam McKay produced this. Uh, I was gonna it, say it, Olivia it, Wilde got Jason Sudeikis in the movie. This movie, how did she pull that off? because <laughs> they're married Peter. yes i know i know uh but uh but it's also you know will forte uh, lisa kudrow uh, jessica yeah. williams it is a lot of like you know people you'll recognize in this and 
I, I feel like I, I keep on feel like I'm, I'm risking overhyping this movie because I've been talking about it so much. And for everyone, everyone I talked to at South by film critics and regular film fans fell in love with this movie. And if something can save Annapurna from itself, if Annapurna can get a hundred million dollar hit, if they market book smart well enough, I think that could be it because I can't imagine people not embracing this movie. It's, it's very special. I like, and I'm very much in love with it. Okay, cool. Let's now move on to your number one film of the festival which I think everybody has probably figured it out by now, is Jordan Peele's film, Us. Yeah, I talked about Us uh, when Ben and I did a podcast last week to do a South By update. And, you know, Get Out was my favorite film of that year, and I was super concerned it would be a sophomore slump, that it would be more of the same, or him, you know, reaching too far. And Us is this perfect combination of him you know, reaching further than Get Out. It's a, it's, a, it's a more expensive movie. It's a bigger movie. The ideas are bigger. The scope is bigger. And he, but he like he has a, such a firm grasp on what he's doing. And if you see the trailer, you know you know this is about a family who is under siege in their home by a quartet of doppelgangers, uh, people who look just like them and know everything they know. And that family is led by Lupita Nyong'o and Winston Duke, you know, uh, who worked together previously in Black Panther. And, uh, and so everybody in this movie is playing dual roles. It's, you know, it's Winston Duke playing, you know, him and his doppelganger and Lupita Nyong'o playing her and her doppelganger. And Winston Duke is, is the source of comic relief in the movie. He's so funny. He's like this great corny dad. And I did an interview with Jordan Peele where he talked about how, like, there's never, there's never been a great, you know, black corny dad that's in movies. So he had a thrill. He was thrilled to write that character and to have Winston Duke play him. And, I'm glad Winston Duke's here making some really good authentic laughs happen because the rest of the film is very dark, uh, darker than Get Out. And Lupita Nyong'o is doing sort of this spellbinding work here. I know in the past we talked about how Tony Collette should have gotten an Oscar nomination for for Hereditary. And there's always this running trend of like great horror performances not being recognized properly for being amazing until, you know, a decade or two later. So I say now what Lupita Nyong'o is doing here in his dual role as mother of the family – and the leader of the doppelgangers who, who are menacing them is just the kind of work that like, I feel like it's going to last because I was blown away by it. And what she's doing physically in this role and what she's doing emotionally with both characters is just nothing short of incredible. And I feel like ever since 12 years a slave came out, uh, she's been off the radar either by choice or because, you know, Hollywood doesn't has no know what to do with her really. And us is like this grand reminder that there's a reason why she won an Oscar, you know, at such a young age. And there's a reason why she's so exciting. And she is so game for these ridiculous things that Jordan Peele's asking you to do. And she's selling them with such terrifying reality. Uh, and for, for maybe for the first half of this movie, I was thinking, okay, this is really good. This is funny. This is terrifying. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o is doing fascinating things. But what's this movie about? And then, like Get Out, there's maybe a moment where you realize what what the social commentary here, what the, the Twilight Zone-esque message beneath all the horror is. And it's not as spelled out as Get Out. I had to, you know, I had to dwell on it for a little bit before I feel like it really crystallized for me. But the message is not explicitly about race as it was with Get Out. But it's about if it's about stuff that we're talking about all the time in America. It's, it's about stuff that is still making headlines. It's about stuff that is a major conversation that that news media is afraid to talk about. And here it is embedded in the, in the, the text of an extremely entertaining, extremely scary, extremely fun horror film uh, that like will leave, have you like, you know, screaming and laughing when it's over probably really troubled by, you know, its message. And I'm looking forward to running my interview with Jordan Peele where we talk about it at length in spoilers because that's what you want to do when the movie's over. You want to have a conversation about what it's saying. And right now, Peter, this is the front runner for my favorite film of the year so far. It means nothing, nothing comes close. And Wow. Yeah, and like I said, I'm here for Jordan Peele making this kind of stuff for the rest of his career. If he wants to keep making horror movies that resonate beyond being scary and have something to say about what America is and where we're going, this is the kind of horror film I want forever we keep bring it on okay those are strong words i'm gonna get to see this tomorrow night uh this film comes out to the general public on march 22nd so in about later this week right yeah yeah later this week and uh 
just be careful of spoilers because I think this is more this is more easy to spoil than get out. And the back half of this film, it, everything you see in the trailers, almost all of it is from either the first half or the first half hour. But hats off to Universal's marketing team, like mwah, mwah, mwah to all of you, because the trailers sell this film perfectly without spoiling any of the best surprises. So yeah. go into this one knowing that um, the trailers have not ruined it for you. Hopefully that pays off. I feel like there's few filmmakers that can pull that off, you know, just of like marketing a film on their name. And I feel like that's what this film is doing. I feel like what they're showing is not much and they're really trying to get people to come out just based on Jordan Peele alone. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, and this, I you know what, Peter? Can we have a spoiler podcast after this comes out? Because yeah. I want to talk. I want to talk about us. I think you will too. Yeah. Well, I well, I'll see it tomorrow. So yeah, we'll we'll talk about it. Um, you can read all the film. Uh, read about all the films that Jacob saw at South by. He did daily diaries for the site. Uh, we will link those in the show notes. Jacob, where can we find more of your work online? Oh, man, I'm on Slash Film every single day uh, doing something on that site. <laughs> I, I am now I'm complaining about Twitter or uh, I'm complaining about Twitter on Twitter uh, at Jacob S. Hall. You can find more of my work at Slash Film on all social media. You can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. And please head on over to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star rating. Uh, write us a couple nice thoughts. Tell your friends. Spread the word. And we'll see you tomorrow with a water cooler episode, the first in, in over two weeks. So uh, join us then.